0: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, welcome to church. My name is Gary Anderson. I serve as the pastor here at Midtown Fellowship Granny White. Uh, so glad that you are here, so glad that you can be with us. If you are visiting or new here this morning, just want to extend a really special welcome. Uh, we know, I know firsthand that it can be hard and awkward and uncomfortable to try a new church, and uh, our hope and prayer is that you will find this place to be a really loving, really welcoming place uh, where you will encounter the living God. We are in a series in Revelation, which has been crazy, Uh, but we are in some of the harder chapters of Revelation these last few weeks. Uh, Last week, the pastor from our East congregation, Brant Bonetti, was here, and he preached the sermon on Revelation chapter 20, which is the day of God's great judgment, and if you're like, that would be an interesting sermon to hear. Uh, it is, and it's not interesting. It's amazing and beautiful. So if you were not here last week, I would highly recommend that you go check out Brandt's sermon. Um, I know you all loved it because I got a lot of emails this week saying, can Brant be our pastor instead of you? <laughs> but he already has a church, so sorry, you're stuck with me. Um, today we are in Revelation chapter 12, uh, and Elisa Goodrich is going to come up and read that for us. We're reading the, love, love that we get some woos, yeah. Um, we're going to read the whole chapter verses one through 17.
1: Okay. Here's the word of the Lord. It's the Royal week. (laughs) And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who kept the commandments of God and hold, the, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thanks, Elisa. Uh, I'm going to pray one more time just uh, after reading God's word, invite him to speak to us through it. Pray with me. God, we now ask that you would quiet our hearts before you that you would turn our attention toward you. We pray, God, as we have brought in here all kinds of cares and worries and frustrations and fears and stuff from the world, that you would allow us to set those aside for this moment uh, and commune with you. I pray that you would allow us to see you for who you are, to hear your words to us. Uh, And God, we believe that your word is living and active and that it transforms us. And so we pray that this uh, would not just be a moment where we learn some new things necessarily, Uh, but that this would be a moment where we are changed and that we leave this place different than we came in because we've had an encounter with the living God. Uh, Only you can do that, and we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, All right, to start out, I want to describe to you uh, a scene from one of the great cinematic masterpieces of the 20th century, the late 20th century. Uh, It starred. I, I was going to say the holy trinity of comedians, but that would be very blasphemous for me to say in church. But uh, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Martin Short. Yeah, I see the nods. Come on. Somebody go, somebody go with me this morning. 1986, uh, The Three Amigos. Yep, I, you know it. So for those who are maybe a little bit younger um, and aren't familiar with this work of art, uh, let me just describe to you one of the um, like most important scenes in the whole movie. So the premise of the movie, The Three Amigos, is these three guys are um, singing and dancing entertainers in silent films in the early part of the 1900s called The Three Amigos. They wear these uh, bedazzled kind of black western wear with big sombreros, and there is a village in Mexico, it's a fictional village, but it's real in the movie, called The Village of... Santa Poco. We got a few. We got a few. And the village of Santa Poco is being oppressed uh, by a uh, bandit group of outlaws uh, led by the heinous and evil El Guapo. And they are extracting tribute from the village, stealing things from them, holding them under their oppressive thumb. And a a woman from the village sees a silent film that the Three Amigos are starring in, and so she sends a message to Hollywood uh, asking if they will come and help liberate them from the oppression of El Guapo and his men. And the Three Amigos think that it is an invitation to come act in a movie in Mexico. And so they travel down to the village of Santa Poco, they're welcomed like heroes, they're given a, a movie movie star welcomed, put up in the best uh, places in town, huge festival thrown in their honor, uh, which just further reinforces to them that they are there to, uh, to act in a movie. And so the El Guapo and his men come into the town one morning, and the three amigos ride out to meet them with all the villagers behind them, and uh, just one of the great... Again, great scenes um, of cinema, American cinema. They ride up to the, uh, all these hardened, grizzled, murderous men, and, and they say, uh, under their breath, they say, it's a pleasure to work with you. And, uh, and then they start like, yelling insults at them, saying, you, know, you slime-sucking pigs, and you something dogs, and you sons of a motherless goat. And then the guys are just looking at him, and they say again, under their breath, he's like, tell us we'll die like dogs. And the guy, El Guapo's like, he's like, tell us we'll die like dogs. And he's like, you will die like dogs. And, and so they say, no, we won't. We'll fight like lions. And then they start riding their horses around in circles, shooting their pistols in the air. But they're blanks, right? Because they think they're acting in a movie. And they just look completely ridiculous. And El Guapo says to his right-hand man, these guys are funny. Only take out one of them. And so the, his right-hand guy lifts up his gun and takes a shot and he knocks one of the three amigos off his horse. And the other two guys run over to him. And they're like, what happened? And he's like, I don't know. And then he sees on his arm that he's bleeding and it's, it's real blood and he realizes he's been shot. And so he marches over to El Guapo and his men and he says, give me your gun. And so the guy gives him his gun and he opens up the chamber and he takes it out and he goes, oh great. He goes, real bullets and he goes, you're in a lot of trouble, mister. <laughs> and what happens next, I'm overstating this, obviously, is one of, just one of the most beautiful scenes of acting you'll ever see. Because Steve Martin, he's not, he doesn't say any words, But you can see in that moment that he begins to realize that he is wrong about what is happening. And he starts to touch all the bullets on the belt of the guy who just gave him his gun. And he gives him back his gun and he goes, excuse me. He turns around and he walks quietly back to the other two amigos. And when he gets back to his two buddies, this is what he says. He goes, it's real. Guys, it's real. They're going to kill us. And then they all start weeping. There you go. Why did I ever come to Mexico? And whatever. So, if you haven't seen a great movie, um, that is a really—it's a genuinely really funny scene. Um, my brother and I, for many years, have used that line in many different situations in life. It's real, guys. It's real. It's preposterous, right? That's partly what makes it so funny. It's preposterous to think that three movie stars dressed in bedazzled Western wear with sombreros, could go to Mexico and think they were filming a movie, but actually end up in a real gunfight. But it's also a little bit, um, it also hits a little bit close to home. Because they, they were in a battle and they didn't realize it. And what is true for every one of us in this room is that we also are in a battle, but a lot of us don't realize it or we're unwilling to admit it. There is, and this is one of the great truths that the book of Revelation is trying to communicate to us from chapter 1 through chapter 22. There is a cosmic spiritual war going on right now. And what happens in that spiritual realm affects what happens here in the physical realm. There is a world beyond what we can see, touch, taste, smell, smell and experience, and what happens in that spiritual world affects what happens here in the physical world. There is a war going on, and a lot of us are not willing to admit it. That's what we need to know, as we come to Revelation chapter 12. So as I said, we have been in some of the challenging chapters in the book of Revelation, but as I hope has been the case, it has been for me, Um, even though some of them are hard to understand, um, some of them teach some really hard things, uh, there have still been beautiful truths that God is teaching us as we move through this book. And my hope and expectation is that we're going to find the same thing today as we come to Revelation chapter 12. Before we dig in, I want to do what we're trying to do every week because we cannot We cannot interpret a passage of scripture properly unless we understand the context that we are coming to it in. And so I want us to continue to work on our outline of the book of Revelation so that we know where we are as we come to Revelation chapter 12. My hope by the end of this series is that if I snuck into your bedroom in the middle of the night and woke you up and said, what is the outline for Revelation? You would be able to do it on the spot. That would be entirely inappropriate and I will never do something like that. But I just, I want us to be clear on what is the arc of what we are being taught here in in Revelation. So Revelation chapter one, John, vision of Jesus, island of Patmos, send this to the seven churches. Revelation 2 and 3, seven messages to seven churches, which as we have uh, come to believe and understand, it is not just to those seven churches, it is to all of Jesus Christ's church. This is a revelation for everyone who calls himself a part of Jesus Christ's church. Revelation 4 and 5, John is caught up, caught up to the heavenly throne room, catches a vision of God Almighty seated on the throne. In his right hand is a scroll. It's sealed. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Nobody, except the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who when he sees him, actually is the lamb that has been slain. Clear so far? So that brings us to Revelation chapter 6. And Revelation chapter 6 through 16 is all related. It is all a description of God's judgment on the kingdom of the earth. So we get seven seals beginning in chapter 6. We get seven bowls. We get seven trumpets. They all are representative of God's judgment on the earth. But in the middle of that 11 chapter arc, we get a little break for a mini story from Revelation 12 to 14, and we are in Revelation 12 today. And that little break is the story essentially of Jesus' life. It starts with Jesus' birth in chapter 12, it, uh, it, not just his life, it's, his, it's Jesus' birth and then his return. You get his return at the end of chapter 14. So as we come to Revelation chapter 12, this is a little retelling of the gospel, it is, a, it is a reframing, we're talking, we call this series Reframing Reality. It is a reframing of the gospel that we are coming to in Revelation chapter 12. What we are going to look at today is a new take on the Christmas story. It's Christmas in October. I hope you got me something. Probably not. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, in the midst, 12 through 14, in the midst of this arc of, of the, the, um, really devastating descriptions of God's judgment on the kingdom of the earth, we get a little reminder in chapter 12 to 14 of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that actually means. Several scholars actually say that Revelation 12 is the theological heart of the book. It is the theological center of the book. So we got to keep that in mind as we come to it. And what we learn in Revelation chapter 12 is that what we are used to with the Christmas story The Christmas story, uh, raising up thoughts of hope and peace on earth and joy and all that kind of stuff that we associate with Christmas, there's some other things that are happening at Christmas as well that we are not as used to uh, when we think about what we do to celebrate Christmas. Uh, This year, we will be talking about the dragon that is waiting to devour the baby on Christmas Eve. I'm just kidding. We're not. But that's part of the Christmas story. And that is exactly, I love this. This is from Eugene Peterson. It's in his book, Reverse Thunder, which is his um, take on the book of Revelation. This is what he says about Revelation 12. He says, This is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder, it excites evil. Herod, Judas, Pilate, ferocious wickedness is goaded to violence by the life of Jesus, and that's exactly what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 12. So three things that I want us to learn from Revelation chapter 12, uh, and like so many of these chapters, time does not permit that we look at everything in here. We'd be till six, here till six o'clock at night. So three, three main things I want us to take from this, and the first one is something we have already, already talked about. We are in a war. We are in a war, and I think at like the base level, this is the main idea of Revelation chapter 12. I think if you don't take away anything else from this message, I hope you do. But it is teaching us that there's a war going on and whether we like it or not, we are a part of it. So let's, uh, let's meet the main characters and then just talk briefly about what the narrative arc of Revelation 12 is. So we're introduced to three uh, main characters in Revelation chapter 12. The first is a woman. Meet me in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So, who is the woman? What does she represent? Now, uh, based on what I just said, and based on kind of what we know about the Bible at a really surface level, when we come to those couple verses, most of us are going to want to say, well, this. This is Mary. And, and maybe at some level it is, but I believe and many scholars agree uh, that this is actually representative of more than Mary. So for those of you who might have some familiarity with the Old Testament, if you think back to Genesis chapter 37, that is the beginning of the story of Joseph. And if you remember what happens at the very beginning of the story of Joseph, he tells his parents and his 11 brothers about a dream that he had. And if you remember what happens in that dream is he says, I had a dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And that really ticks his family off. Why? Because we presume that he is the 12th star and that dad is the sun, mom is the moon, 11 stars are his brothers and they are bowing down to him. And so the fact that they're bowing down, that's for a Genesis Sermon on the Life of Joseph some other day. But what is that picture painting for us? It's, that's Jacob and his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel who are the set-apart, marked-out people of God. So then we come to a woman here who is wearing, has the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars, and we remember that imagery. And then when we think to the New Testament, and the primary picture that God uses in the New Testament to describe his church in relationship to his son is what? The Bride of Christ... What most people are going to say and what I would subscribe to is that this woman actually represents God's people. The woman represents the, 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 set apart, marked out covenant people of God. And so when we come to verse two and we're like, why does it say that she is in agony and birth pains? That is a picture of the people of God before the Messiah came. They are in, they are in the birth pains of waiting for deliverance from a savior, from a Messiah. So the woman is the people of God. And that is like really critical for us to uh, understand as we're gonna move through the rest of Revelation 12. Two more characters. We've got in verse three, a red dragon, seven heads, 10 horns, and on his head, seven diadems. That is not uh, like um, an image that is representing something uh, esoteric that we gotta kinda analyze. We can just jump ahead to verse nine. The great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world so the red dragon is satan got it got it one more main character male child verse 5 she gave birth to a male child one is to, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to god and to his throne Again, not any really symbolism here. Psalm 2, which f- since almost it was written, has believed, has been understood and interpreted to be a messianic psalm, which means it was predicting the coming of the Messiah. It says in verse 9 that the coming Messiah will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The male child is Jesus. Okay? So what is happening in Revelation 12? What is the story that is going on here? So we've got the woman, the people of God, they're waiting in anticipation for the deliverance of their Messiah. The Messiah is born. In verse five, we get the whole life of Jesus, the whole incarnation in one verse. He was born to the woman and he ascended to God in heaven. Like that's the story of Jesus. It's the gospel this, the deceiver, the adversary, the red dragon was there hoping to destroy the child. He was not able to destroy the child. The woman, God's people were protected. Concurrently versus the middle part of this chapter, verses seven to 12, this gives a little more insight into what is happening in the midst of this. And what does it say in no uncertain terms? Verse seven, there's a war going on in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting the dragon. They defeat the dragon. The dragon is sent down to the earth and hear what God, or actually what the voice says on behalf of God after Satan has been cast down to earth. Woe to you, this is verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil comes down to the earth, goes after the woman, the earth protects her. And then we get down to verse 17, last verse in the chapter. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So here's the deal. Uh, this spiritual war that is going on right now is not like the wars that we are used to here. So most of our wars we understand to be battle, 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 and then it's over and the war is over. The way the spiritual war is working is that the enemy has already been defeated. Satan has been thrown down. But in God's unsearchable plan, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom that we cannot grasp, the war is over, but the battles are still going on. One day that will come to an end. That's part of the whole trajectory of Revelation. But we have to recognize that we are in a war, that it is going on, that there is something, that there is someone who is out to destroy you. There is someone who is out to destroy me. And we must see that because people who are in a war and don't recognize it are shooting blanks into the air, looking like idiots, and then they get shot by real bullets off their horses. We are in a war and we gotta see it uh, I believe the year was 2003. Uh, and as I was, um, putting this, putting, as I was thinking about this for this sermon, I was like, this is kind of an obscure illustration, but then I realized that it involved, uh, the University of Tennessee. And I was like, oh, actually this may land with some people, uh, hometown crowd, right? Well, close enough. Uh, in 2003, the University of Miami football team, who I think was ranked 10th, had a midseason game, uh, I think in Tennessee, against the Tennessee Volunteers football team, who I think were ranked sixth at the time. Uh, one of the players for the University of Miami was a tight end, one of the g- great college tight ends uh, in the history of college football. His name was Kellen Winslow Jr. And he is a very troubled man and has done some really horrific things in his life since that time. But at the time, he was like a college sophomore or junior, maybe one of the greatest tight ends in the country. And during that game, he, uh, on like a sweep play around the outside, he threw a block on a Tennessee volunteer player. And then he hurt him on that block and he kind of stood over him, like posturing after he had knocked him out and, and knocked him to the ground. It's kind of what I do when I block my kids' shots in the driveway when we're playing basketball, just to le- remind them like who, who they're playing against and, you know, keep the pecking order in line. Um, after the game at his locker, one of the reporters asked him, "Did you know that you had hurt that guy that you were standing over?" And he responded very famously, uh, "He used some language that we're not going to use in church, and hopefully not use outside of church. Um, but he said, essentially, "Yeah, I know I heard him." He goes." that's a war out there. He goes, I'm a soldier. And as you can imagine, he was uh, roundly criticized, and that's putting it mildly, for what he said in that moment. For him to compare a game, a football game, to war and call himself a soldier when there are real wars going on, when there are real soldiers out there, the public just lost their minds over it. And rightfully so, he had to issue an apology, um, and he just looked kind of like a fool in doing it. I tell that story very intentionally this morning, because I suspect that there are a lot of people who are not familiar with the Christian faith. And I also suspect there's probably a bunch of us in here this morning who, when I say we are in a war, Something in you kind of like wants to recoil. Like, uh, that feels a little, Gary, don't you think that's a little bit harsh? Don't you think that's a little bit overstating it? Don't you think that's a little bit offensive? Because there are real wars going on. And actually, like how poignant a moment to be talking about being a part of a war. I wrestled this week, like, should I really say that? Because it feels with what's going on in the Middle East right now, it could feel flippant for me to say, hey, we're in a war. But that's literally what God's word says and here's, here's why I'm actually pretty comfortable talking like that this morning. Because that war that we're watching happen right now in the Middle East, which is horrific. And there are things happening there that, that are so far removed from most of our experiences, we wouldn't even know how to, we don't have a category for it. But that war that is happening right now is simply a physical manifestation of the spiritual war that is going on all around us. And please, I want to be really careful. I I am not saying that that war, there are a lot of pastors coming out now saying that's fulfillment of biblical prophecy and that's what Revelation is That's. I'm, I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is that there's a spiritual war between good and evil going on right now all around us. And we see physical manifestations around that. So that war in the Middle East, that is related to the spiritual war. But so also is the war that is going on in your heart today. So also is the war that is going on in your marriage today so also is the war that is going on in your relationships and in your work because there is a cosmic spiritual battle going on and we are caught up in it whether we want to be or not and we got to recognize it. And here's what that means. That, that radically transforms how we approach life because if we're at peace and no one's out to get us and things are cool and calm and collected, we don't have to watch our backs we don't have to we don't have to worry about what's going to happen to us. When 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 we are living in peacetime, we can be comfortable and cool and not have to worry but but when there is a war going on, that changes everything. You have to be aware of what is going on. Listen, soldiers in a war, they don't complain about how the food tastes. Well, maybe they they probably do. But but it's because they are on mission. It radically transforms how we approach our life. This is not just a a cruise ship, cruise into the end times for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We are in a battle. And so we need to get up and put on our armor every day and go out expecting that there is something out there trying to get us. And we are part of a greater mission than ourselves, which gives meaning and purpose to our lives that just living for ourselves could never do. Okay, we're in a war. Here's the second thing I want us to draw out of this text. We're in a war and we have a hard time recognizing it because the enemy fights dirty. The enemy fights dirty. And this one uh, we can, this one just is kind of pretty clear. Skip back ahead with me to verse nine. Who is the enemy in this war? It is Satan, the devil, and his minions. Verse nine says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then skip ahead to verse uh, 10, second part of verse 10. It says, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Who is the enemy that we are fighting against? Uh, satan is not, was not initially a proper name. It is a Hebrew word, Satan, that just literally means the adversary. Now, it has come to become a proper name, but it just means the one who is against you, the adversary. And what do we know? What does this tell us about the one who is against us? Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. He is a liar. Uh, when it says he's the ancient serpent, what does that bring to mind? Ancient means really old. Serpent. So do we th- can we think of a really old serpent? Maybe back to Genesis 3, the one who came to Eve in the garden, And how did he, what did he do? What was his method? What was the way that he enticed Eve uh, and Adam, both of them? And it's the way that he has been tricking people ever since. He lied to them. Did God really say, he is the father of lies, he is a liar, he fights dirty, and what's the last thing that it tells us that he does? He accuses them day and night before our God. So he is an adversary, he is a liar, and he is an accuser. Day and night, never stops speaking into our lives, lies and accusations. And part of the challenge for us is if we don't realize we're in a war, we have a hard time discerning which is the voice of the deceiver and what are the voices I need to listen to. I have two children. Well, I have four children, always have four children. I have two children right now who are playing soccer. And at the beginning of the soccer season, we got an email from their coach or the organization uh, laying out some kind of expectations and what they were hoping the parents, uh, basically, here's how we hope you act during the soccer season. And uh, one of the things that they asked of the parents was, uh, please don't coach your kids from the sidelines during the games because it really confuses them and it makes it hard for them to hear the voice of who their actual coach is. And that's totally true. When you got 40 parents and three coaches and they're all yelling stuff and where you should go and what you should do, that can be very confusing for children. Uh, The problem is I know exactly what my kids should be doing at any given time. (laughs) And so I feel like it's just my responsibility to tell them what they should be doing, whether that's on the soccer field or anywhere else in life. Um, And here's the deal whether you like soccer or not, we are all in a soccer game of life. And there are so many voices speaking into our lives at any given time. And what is really challenging for us is learning to discern the voice of the the God who we serve and not all the other lies of the deceiver and the accuser. Here, so, so, what I want to try and help us do is parse out a little bit of how we might be able to discern uh, which voice it is that is speaking to us. Because sometimes, I, sometimes I'm not even sure: is this my voice that's speaking to me, or is this Satan's voice that's speaking to me, or is this God's voice that's speaking to me? Um, when you are having a hard time, when you are sad, discouraged, frustrated, disappointed, angry. We all get there at times. When you are in that place and you hear a voice saying to you, you know what would help is just some more Netflix. Or you know what would really make you feel better is to, I think if you bought something else, that might make you feel a lot better. Or when you hear a voice saying, I think another vacation is the answer to your problems. Or maybe just a little bit more porn. Or maybe just pour one more drink. That is not the voice of God, your father. That is the voice of the deceiver that is the voice of Satan. And here's the thing about what the deceiver does, what the accuser does. He doesn't just tell us what we should do. He tells us who we are. And so when you hear, when you, when you hear a voice inside of you or coming from outside of you saying, you've done some horrible things. Actually, that's true. Sometimes he tells the truth because we all have. But when the follow-up to that is, and therefore, who could ever love you? Therefore, You can never show someone who you really are. And therefore, who are you to be up in church this morning, singing to God like you love him after the things that you have done? All those things, lies, lies from the pit of hell. But we believe them because we have a hard time discerning between, is this my voice or is this the voice of the deceiver? And part of how we get better at hearing God's voice is spending a lot of time in this book. Because when you learn how he talks to you, it helps you to recognize his voice amidst all the parents, all the coaches yelling at you from the sideline. That's the voice that I need to listen to. We are in a war and the enemy fights dirty. And here's the last thing that I want us to draw out of this passage. Um, And I'm gonna qualify it. So wait till I get to the end. God protects those who are his. through suffering. God protects those who are his through suffering. So uh, the clear message of Revelation 12 is that there is a war. Uh, The war has been won. Satan has been defeated, but he still has some power. He still has some dominion for a short time. Literally, it's in the text. And we are at war with him. The war is won, okay? There's tons of hope in that. There's tons of promise in that. And in the midst of the battles, between now and when the war is finally put to an end, in the midst of the battles, the promise of Revelation 12 is that God protects his people. And how does he do that? It says it twice. Once in verse 6, and then again in verse 14. Remember, the woman represents the people of God. Verse 6, and the woman fled where? into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Skip ahead to verse 14. Dragon is banished back to earth. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the where? The wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time. The clear teaching of Revelation 12, God protects his people where? In the wilderness. And for those of us this morning like me who are like outdoorsy people, I think we're like, that sounds great. Especially if you work in an office and you're like, I love being outdoors. I love hiking and camping. Outside is where I really can connect well with God. And I think it wouldn't be hard to catch visions here of um, being nourished in the desert. I mean, that's like five-star resort in Mesa or whatever with spa treatments and uh, farm-to-table food. And like, yeah, that's the kind of protection I'm looking for. But if we know the arc of scripture, we know that the, the wilderness is a huge theme going all the way back to the, the book of Exodus, actually back to the book of Genesis, but it really gets, really gets fleshed out in Exodus. Here's the deal. One of the three major themes of the book of Revelation, and this is kind of the first time we've really hit on it in the series, one of the major themes of the book of Revelation is the end times Exodus for the people of God. So if you know what happened in the book of Exodus, God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. It is one of, it is not one of, it is the controlling picture and narrative of the Old Testament. And it was a precursor to what Jesus was going to do, what God was going to do through Jesus to deliver his set apart chosen people from slavery to sin. How did God deliver his children from slavery in Egypt? How did he deliver them from oppression underneath Pharaoh and the Egyptians? What did he do? He took them where? Where? to the wilderness. And was that 40 years of spa treatments and beautiful mountain hikes? It was 40 years of hard labor. It was 40 years of frustration, disappointment, fear, sickness, questioning, doubting. And yet at the same time, what does God say about the time of the Israelites in the wilderness? It was the time that he was with them every step of the way. He led them by fire at night and by a pillar of cloud in the day. He provided water out of the rock. He provided manna from heaven. He provided quail for them to eat. It was the time of maybe the most intimate communion that the nation of Israel had with God. It was a time of trial and testing and suffering, and it was also the way God delivered and protected them. And I'm not sure that there's any text in scripture, there might be, and I just don't know of it, that parses that out, more clearly than what is one of my favorite passages. And I know you're like, oh, every one of them is your favorite. Um, This is Revelation, or excuse me, wow. Deuteronomy chapter eight. It says, the, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. And God is like, it's about to get really good. And I need to explain to you what just happened over the last 40 years that you were in the wilderness. And this is what he says. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And that does not mean remember which places you went to. That means that I was with you the entire time. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. God protects his people from the battle, but the way that he does it is through suffering. And that stinks. (laughs) Because here's what I think that means. It means that whatever wilderness you might be in this morning when everything inside of you wants to be like where are you god what kind of god does this when are you going to get me out of this why are you doing this the truth of revelation chapter 12 is it might be that god is using that very thing to protect you from things you don't even know about your financial struggles might right now they might be the result of your bad decisions And at the same time, they might also be God's gracious hand in your life, teaching you something you would have never learned otherwise and drawing you closer to him. The difficulty in your marriage, as hard as that might be today, that that could be because of your poor decisions. And it also at the same time could be God's gracious hand in your life, reminding you that you are helpless without him, that he is your only hope and protecting you from something that you may never know about. Your sickness today, your your cancer diagnosis, whatever else your body might be doing that is so contrary to what you want it to be doing, that could be God's gracious hand in your life drawing you to himself, revealing himself to you in ways you would never see him otherwise, and in some mysterious way, protecting you from the spiritual battle that is raging on all around you. Which seems insane until we think about what we know about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because if, God, if it is true, no, not if it is true, because the reason we know that it is true that God delivers and protects his people through suffering is because we see it in Jesus Christ. There was somebody else who had to go to the wilderness besides the Israelites After Jesus was baptized, God is like, this is my guy. This is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And you're like, all right, it's go time. And Mark tells us the very next thing that happened was the spirit drove him to the wilderness. The literal Greek translation is it threw him into the wilderness. And what did he do in the wilderness? He did battle with Satan. So that you and I could go to the wilderness and not have the battle with Satan, but be there protected by God, just as God does for the woman here in this passage. And three years after that, approximately, Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. His blood flowed freely, and it was real. It was real, guys. The blood was real. And in that moment, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went to the spiritual wilderness so that you and I would never have to go there. Because Jesus experienced separation from God, because he experienced the spiritual wilderness, for those who are covered by his blood, we uh, we don't ever have to worry that we will ever be separated fully from God. It was in Jesus' suffering that he delivered us. And the call on the life of his followers, as we see here in Revelation 12, is that God delivers us in the same way. Now, you know, we're we're not quite at the end of the book, And so just like keep in the back of your mind that it's not always gonna be like this. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. We have a vision of the shore that allows us to go through whatever it is that God gives us in this life because we know this life doesn't have the last say. This battle does not have the last say. The red dragon does not have the last say. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. It's real, guys. It's real. Let's pray. God, I think we know intuitively that what you teach in Revelation chapter 12 is true because it feels like it as we move through this life. There are a lot of days where it feels like something is out to get us. And my prayer this morning, God, is that you will allow us to walk out of this place confident in the promise that you are protecting us from things that we don't even know about. And that one day, you will return and put all things right. May you find us faithful until that day and give us what we need to fight the battles that you have put in front of us, knowing that you have gone before us, you go behind us, and we have nothing to fear when you are with us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.